All right, good morning, church, and Merry Christmas Eve. My name is James, and we will now be reading today's passage from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and she will call, him na- call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. Forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who has called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the reading of God's word. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to True North Church. For those that are new or visiting, we want to warmly greet you and just uh, want to introduce myself. My name is Jan, the lead pastor here, and I will be uh, just very privileged to be able to share the Word of God this morning with you. Now, um, I can't believe it's already the end of 2023. Uh, In my mind, it's still like the start of 2020, and, uh, you know, I'm still like 39 years old, but unfortunately... I'm going to be 44 soon, and I think when you hit that age of like, you know, 40, like past 43, it's, it means that you're officially old, right? And one of the negative things about getting older is that certain things, it's kind of lose your lust, it's kind of loses luster over time, right? So recently, I was watching uh, my kids as they were watching a movie called Puss in Boots for the 15th time, and uh, they started laughing at a scene uh, that they had already seen many times before, but they were laughing at it as if it was like the very first time they've watched it, you know, and... and and it was like there was like a visible and genuine excitement just in their voice and in their, in their cackle. And, you know, they're just la- la- like laughing hysterically. And I was just like, man, that's, it's so awesome. I wish I could be that young again and, and have to like be able to experience things for the first time again, right? And, you know, it's just, and it's, it's just kind of interesting to see like young, young kids and, and just how excited they get. Like when I tell them I'm going to take them to McDonald's for lunch, it, like they, they like just burst into joy as if they've never eaten a meal in their life, right? Um, and for me, like, every meal I, I eat now, I'm just, I'm just so disappointed, you know? Like, it just doesn't, ta- it doesn't bring back the same, same memories, right? And so, you know, just kind of like this idea of, of me, just in my middle age, I'm like, I feel like I'm constantly uh, searching and chasing after uh, the feeling of joy and excitement and, and just innocence, right? And so as the Christmas season was rolling around, uh, I try to kind of jumpstart that. Uh, the first thing I did was I went to an outdoor mall at, at night with the Christmas. I don't know, like, that's supposed to remind me of Christmas, right? But it didn't. It just made me cold. Um, so I thought, you know, I'm going to go into uh, Williams and Sonoma. Because you know, what else can get you into the Christmas spirit like 
going into Williams and Sonoma, right? I, I don't know if you guys have ever been to that store, but it's an amazing store. You know, you walk in and it smells like peppermint and like pumpkin, and you see all the cookware, and it's supposed to kind of, I, I don't know what it is, but it reminds me of Christmas, but it didn't work either. So um, last night I said, hey, kids, we're going to watch a Christmas classic. Uh, I made them watch Die Hard with me, uh, and, I, and I thought that this would kind of remind me of Christmas, give me that Christmas feel, but my daughter was like, you know, the movie, there was nothing about Christmas in that movie, and I was like, what are you talking about? There's Christmas music, it takes during a, during a Christmas party, right? She's like, but it didn't give me the Christmas feel, and I was just like, ah, do some burpees, right? Um, but I, anyways, just kind of thinking about through all that, I, I realized that for some, for, for some of us, and maybe perhaps many of us, uh, even during a time where it's supposed to be a time of celebration and a time of, of just, you know, feeling good and, and, and warm and fuzzy and happy, that perhaps uh, we go through many different struggles in our emotions, in our lives, uh, just in our relationships, that even during a time when we're supposed to be festive and, and, and joyful, um, that maybe we are dealing with struggles. Maybe we're dealing with, with pains. Maybe we're dealing with the loss of, of loved ones or, or, or just the, uh, the depression of, of not being able to see our lives uh, come to fruition in the way that we are hoping or that we are expecting. And so Christmas oftentimes, even though it is a time of joy and celebration, for many of us can be a time of pain and suffering. Right? And I cannot say that um, the reason for, for many of us is, is the same. It can be very different for, for whoever it is that you are. Uh, but, it, but it's also a reminder that during Christmas, uh, even in the darkest times, that it is also a time to remember and commemorate uh, the birth of, of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that the God of the cosmic universe would come down into, in the form of man to be able to uh, bring salvation and, and to bring hope into a, a world that is hopeless, Right. So I, I, as we continue on or as we think about Christmas this season, uh, I wanna, uh, as we've read in our passage in Luke, I want to see how Mary, the mother of Jesus, clings to hope, the hope of a Savior, even in the midst of her pain and, uh, and suffering and trauma. So first of all, the first point is this, that there is hope in darkness. You know, Christmas is oftentimes seen as the, one of the darkest seasons of you know, the, the calendar year, right? And, and the entrance of a savior, the entrance of, of God being born as, as a baby is really the announcement that there is hope even in a time of darkness, even in a time of pain, even in a time of suffering, right? Now, the immaculate conception and the virgin birth are events in history uh, that, is a, that is non-negotiable in Orthodox Christianity, right? If you are a believer of Jesus and a follower of, of Christ, uh, those two events are things that you, you know, you have to believe in faith, and first of all, uh, Jesus was born in this way because it fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. And second, the Savior of mankind coming into the world in this way makes it possible that he would be born into this world without sin, making him the new Adam that will reverse the curse and the failure of the original Adam. Now, the practical side of me always wondered why God chose this course. Uh, I mean, couldn't he have chosen a way to bring Jesus into the world that would be a little bit more believable, right, a little bit less awkward? Uh, why would he bring his son into a world in such a far-fetched way, right? Believing in something like the Immaculate Conception or the virgin birth goes against logic and science and biology, and it makes having faith in Jesus come at a cost of sometimes our intellectual reputation. And especially here in the Silicon Valley where most people fancy themselves as logical and intelligent, uh, believing in something as miraculous as a virgin birth can be looked down upon. So there's definitely a feeling of slight persecution and maybe ridicule for being a Christian celebrating Christmas. 
Now, as I was thinking about this, and I was, th- you know, and I've and I've had conversations with people who are studying at Stanford or you know just work in tech, and you know just the, this idea of like, hey, yeah, you know, um, a virgin becoming pregnant by God—that's you know a little weird, right? Or or even just this idea that. Uh, you know, that Mary was chosen, you know, at, at such a young age, and, and to be able to kind of share that and, and to even uh, announce that can make us feel a little bit uh, self-conscious about what we believe in. And, and as I was kind of reflecting upon that and why I might be uh, a little bit self-conscious about it or what other, my, other people might think about it, I realized that um, as I was reflecting that Mary, you know, the struggles that I have and the struggles that you have is nothing compared to what Mary went through. I mean, think about it. Mary is this young lady, and, and some commentators will say that um, she was probably just a young teenager at the time, possibly, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old, you know, so either uh, a middle school aged or a, a young high school aged, right? And here's this young, young girl who is betrothed to be married to, be, uh, to a man named Joseph, and um, she gets a message from God that she is going to be pregnant. Right? And just think, I mean, just the idea of this kind of what Mary had to go through uh, is, is really something that I can't fully grasp. Right? Number one, I'm not a female. And number two, I can't really put myself into her position. And I don't really understand all the co- cultural context of what that would imply. But to kind of give us a little bit of more of a cultural context, number one, she's betrothed to be married to, uh, to a man named Joseph. And the, the idea of a betrothal in Jew, Jewish culture is similar to engagement in our culture, uh, but kind of on steroids, right? It's, so it's, it's similar, but not completely the same. Uh, to be betrothed to somebody meant that they were legally binded and, and to the commitment of marriage. So once a couple is betrothed, uh, they were technically considered legally married, even though they had not yet lived together or consummated the marriage. And therefore, in, in order to... Uh, break off the betrothal, it required legal divorce uh, and, and the process of the court of law and, and, and Jewish religion, right? In our days, if you're engaged, you can break off that engagement, you know, without any sort of legal documents or any lawyers involved, you know, give the ring back, maybe not give the ring back, whatever the case is, right? Uh, now, there's also, uh, in betrothal, there's actually a waiting period before the actual marriage ceremony. So the waiting period be, be, uh, allowed both the bride and the groom to prepare to for marriage. So oftentimes the bride would be preparing her dow- drow- uh, dowry uh, or and also to kind of come of age. A lot of times the, these women and girls that were betrothed, they were you know, betrothed before they were like fully developed, right? So there was a waiting period between, uh, for that. The groom would be preparing his own house or his own business or, or whatever it is that he needs to prepare in order to uh, you know, sustain a married life. And because of this, um, legally, you know, because it was legally marriage, uh, the couple would be exclusive in their relationship, right? Any infidelity during this time would be considered adultery and with the punishment for adultery at the time being, uh, you know, at the worst end, public stoning. And we read a, uh, we read a story about this uh, in the Gospels where a woman is caught in adultery and the people bring, you know, kind of drag her out and, and, and they ask Jesus, you know, like, hey, sh- should we stone this woman, right? So that's, and that's a common occurrence at that time. So here is a young teenager who's probably in a middle schooler age, right? She is visited by an angel telling her that she would conceive a child. Now, you know, my oldest daughter, she's now in sixth grade. Like, I can't, like, how would she even handle that, right? Like, it's just mind-boggling. And then also to think about the suffering and trauma that she would have to face because of this event. 
right? And, and it's, it's interesting, like, you, you see the response, you read the response of Mary, even at a very young age. Um, her faith is amazing, right? As she trusts this message and responds, right, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I mean, just think about the depth and, and the meaning behind that word, that, the, the, those words that she says. What she is saying is, like, you will be in control of what's going to be happening in my life. The fact that she is, is just kind of bowing down and allowing and, and, and just, you know, trusting in the sovereignty of God, because what is in store for her is not, you know, this grandeur and glory and, 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 and you know, praise. People are going to ridicule her. People are going to mock her. People are going to judge her and her family. And her child that she will have will, will never be able to really live a normal life. I once saw an episode of Maury Povich uh, where this young girl said that she was uh, a virgin, but she was pregnant, right? Very similar to the story of Mary. No one believed her, right? And uh, you know, no one remembers her name. She's not, uh, you know, venerated or in any way because, you know, we would, we would all believe that she's just crazy or she's just lying. She's making it up. Right, that visceral response to this girl coming on that show is very similar, maybe even more intense to what Mary had to deal with for the rest of her adult life. And yet her response is one of amazing faith. But honestly, who would believe a young teenage girl that she was still a virgin, that she was not unfaithful to her betrothed husband? And that she had become pregnant by God. Now, it's one thing to say that, hey, like, uh, um, you know, I'm still a virgin, but I don't know how I got pregnant. Maybe there's, like, some crazy biological, you know, crazy thing that might have happened. You know, I, I don't know, right? I don't want to get in trouble. But, um, but on top of that, she says, no, I'm actually pregnant because of God. He has put this baby inside me. You would sound absolutely crazy. You would be mocked. You'd be talked about. Your child would be ridiculed. The side comments and the judgmental eyes, not only from strangers, but also from her family and her in-laws, must have been to a point where you're just like absolutely just devastated. You know, uh, like as an adult, I feel like I'm somewhat emotionally stable, but let's be real, even as adults, we're still kind of emotionally unstable, Right? And if you are a parent of teenagers or grown kids, uh, just think, or even just as yourself, remember back when you were like 13 years old, how emotionally unstable you were, right? And just, you know, just the slightest thing would set you off. Uh, little things would make you feel so insecure. Little things would, would make you feel like the world is coming to an end. And here's Mary having to deal with the very torture of constantly being ridiculed, mocked, judged, and seen as an adulteress, seen as a liar, seen as someone that is somewhat crazy. So throughout her life, she felt the persecution and judgment of the people around her. And there was nothing she could do except cling to the hope in the message that she had received. The message was, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him, his name, Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And this is what makes the hope of Jesus so much greater than any other hope that we can find in this world. 
Because the hope of Jesus comes to us during a time of great pain and suffering. It comes to us, but just not intellectually or conceptually. The hope of Jesus comes tangibly in the flesh. And this hope also comes being able to relate to our greatest pains and our greatest traumas. As Jesus himself also suffered the persecution and ridicule of being a product of what people thought was an adulterous relationship. So, not, so hope not only comes during our darkest moments, but we also see hope being revealed in the life of Mary. Right? Now, I can only imagine being in the position of Mary and having to come forth with the news that she's pregnant. I mean, can you imagine like telling your parents, like, hey, um, I'm, I'm pregnant, um, but I swear, like, I'm, I'm still a virgin, right? Like, that's a weird, co- like, how do you even bring that up, right? And they're like, what do you mean? And you're like, well, you know, the Holy Spirit told me that God is going to put, a, you know, the Savior of the world in, in, in my womb. Like, like, that is crazy, right? So even the buildup of having to, like, prepare for that message to tell your parents and your family, and, then not, and that's only the, the first part. And then on top of that, you have to be prepared to tell the, your in-laws. Now we got to tell Joseph and his, and his family that I've been completely faithful to him, um, that I'm still, you know, I'm still a virgin, but, you know, God put a baby in my stomach. Now, when she told that she will have a child, um, she responds, how is this possible for I am a virgin, right? Uh, her response to the angels, uh, it tells us that she understands the basics of biology. This understanding reveals to us that she definitely understands the ramifications of her pregnancy, that others will not believe her, that her pregnancy uh, would ultimately result in divorce, possibly her death, shame on the family, and the worst case scenario, um, you know, her and her baby will die, right? But Mary, we see hope is revealed to her in in small glimmers of hope uh, as her betrothed husband, Joseph, does not divorce her, but he also has the faith to believe in the encounter uh, that she had and that later he has in a dream. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, uh, Joseph is described as her husband, which again tells us uh, that betrothal is, is official, uh, that it, she, he is basically her husband, um, and that during that time, it was also described that Joseph was a just and righteous man. Right? He didn't want to seek revenge, and he didn't want to publicly shame Mary and her family, so it is written that he wanted to desire to divorce her quietly, right? And, 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 that, and that really shows kind of like the righteousness uh, of Joseph, right? I mean, if, if you are married or if you're about to get married and, and you, know, someone, you, know, you believe someone cheats on you, like there's a, a, a type of anger that will arise in you, right? Uh, for many of you might have experienced it in your dating lives or, or even maybe perhaps in your married life. And it's just one of the things that you, I can imagine is the, a very painful feeling. And for Joseph... To take the high road and say, you know what, um, I'm going to divorce her quietly. I don't want to make a big stink about it. I don't want her, to, her and her family to uh, have to endure the shame of, of this event. I don't want her, you know, her to possibly be stoned out in public. Uh, he was a just and righteous man. So you, number one, you see a, a, a glimmer of hope already being revealed in the fact that Joseph's response to this event is, is very gracious. But not only that... Um, According to kind of, you know, just what, a, what occurs, Joseph then has a dream. He has a dream, and in that dream, he is told, hey, don't divorce Mary for everything that she's saying is true, that she is 
you know, with baby, with the, the, the Savior of the world in, inside of her, right? And, and, I, and I think one of the things that is very important is even the response of Joseph or even the fact that God would choose this man to be the husband of Mary is, is, is really seeing the sovereignty of God and the glimmers of hope that he would reveal to her throughout her life. I think any other man, also not any other, maybe the majority of men in this situation would want absolutely nothing to do with Mary, right? Many of us, you know, in hindsight, we'd be like, oh, we'll be like Joseph. We, we don't know, right? Even if we just quietly divorced her, right? Uh, it, it's most likely the case scenario, right? How many of us would stay in a relationship where culturally it would be seen as absolutely despicable? Uh, people would constantly question um, the, the reality of, uh, of your child and, 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 you know, the faithfulness of your wife. How many of us would want to stay in that type of relationship? But then he is visited in his dream, and it said this, this angel, the angel of the Lord says in, uh, in verse 22 of, chapter, uh, of John, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel. Now, even if I was in this situation, and I had a dream, and, and the dream, an angel of the Lord comes and says, hey, you need to stay with Mary, uh, you know, because this is all part of God's prophecy, I wouldn't believe it. Right? I mean, who would? Who in their right mind would believe it? And, and not only that, even if it came, I'd just be like, I don't know if I really dreamed this, or I don't really know if this is what God wants me to do. It would, it would be a very difficult pill to swallow. And yet, Joseph is the type of person who is able to believe in these words. And now, I believe in my hypothesis is because uh, as he had this dream, he was unable to ignore the scriptures which he had been studying, the word of God which he has been meditating upon. For if you read the Old Testament, we see that the prophecy of the Old Testament shows that the Savior, the Messiah would come born of a virgin. That if you don't have to look too hard, you don't have to study too, uh, uh, you know, too hard to figure out that Jesus was born in this way to fulfill prophecy. And for Joseph, a man who is described as righteous and just, he most likely understood and maybe even had a call back to these passages about the virgin birth. So when he has this dream, he's now able to place his faith in the word of God. He's able to believe that maybe this is a part of God's will. Maybe this is something that is coming from God. Maybe Mary isn't crazy. Maybe she isn't trying to pull one over on me. And I think for many of us, oftentimes, hope is revealed to us very tangibly through God's word. And yet many of us, we have such a difficult time believing it. We have a very difficult time even just grasping and clinging to it because the things that, that this world tells us and teaches us has become so saturated in our hearts that the very truth of God's words becomes powerless. It becomes things that sounds trivial. Or our response is, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. I've read that before. Yeah, God is, is, is good. Oh, yeah, I get it. But the reality is that I'm going through this in life. Right? Joseph did not respond in that way. The turmoil that he's going through, he's deciding what is the correct response to the situation. 
Do I divorce her quietly? Do I take it up to public court and have her dragged out in public and, and have people stone her? Do I, do I ridicule her for the claims that she's saying that she's impregnated by God and that in her womb is the savior of the world? And then he has his dream and now he has to understand, decipher and process what, what does this dream mean? Does it match with the word of God? Does it match with the prophecies of the Old Testament? And by faith, and because of the fact that he is a man who meditates and reads and studies the Word of God, he is able to believe this dream. I think for many of us, especially for those that have grown up in the church for a long time or, or, or have you know, heard these messages before, um, if, if the, the, the feeling of Christmas loses its luster... Uh, unfortunately, the, the message of, of God also loses its luster in our lives. We become jaded. We become hardened. We become very uh, a stoic to, to the, the, the marvels and the realities of the hope that is shared with us through his words. And Christmas is one of those moments where we are able to call back to the, to, to the, the awesomeness of what the message of God really is. I mean, think about it. We are here celebrating, across the world, we are celebrating the birth of a poor carpenter's son in a small manger in, in, in the middle of Palestine. Why? Billions of, maybe even trillions of babies have been born before, right? Uh, great men and women have, have lived throughout the course of history, and yet 2,000 years later, we are still commemorating the birth of this one child because we deep down either believe or, or have been taught that this child is no ordinary child, but that he is the hope of the entire world, that he is one that brings life into a world that is filled with death, that he is the one that the prince of peace that brings peace into a world filled with war, that he is light in darkness that he is the savior of all mankind, the one who will reverse the curse of sin. And so in Mary's life and in Joseph's life, we see that hope is revealed to them, that even before the birth of the savior, even before they would see Jesus grow to be the man that he, he would become, even before he starts his ministry, even before his death and resurrection on the cross, there is a hope that is revealed to them that is founded upon the word of God. And their faith is, is sure. Lastly, uh, hope comes in the darkness. Hope is revealed to us, but hope is also realized. It is, it, it is real. One thing that we don't often think about is the reality that even after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph must have gone through the scrutiny of others. Right? One of the biggest uh, pains and, and, and biggest things that we suffer through in life is really just kind of the murmurs and, and, and the gossip and the talk that we all, we, all, we all kind of experience with the people around us, right? Whether, the, whether it's your family talking about you, whether it's your, your, your coworkers talking about you, whether it's your friends talking about you, uh, that's one of the most painful things that we endure as human beings. Right? The judgment, the scrutiny, the criticisms, the murmurs that, that, that sometimes we kind of hear in the background. And the entirety of Mary's and Joseph's life, um, that's kind of what they're going through. 
Right? I mean, the news, news was made very clear. Hey, here's this young betrothed female. She has not yet legally been, you know, consummated in her marriage, and yet she is pregnant. And here's Joseph. Maybe he's spineless. Maybe he has no backbone. Maybe he was, uh, you know, kind of uh, handcuffed in this position, but how can he marry such a girl like that? And not only that, now they're going to raise their child as if it's really theirs? It's an illegitimate child. And according to Jewish customs, they had every right to disinherit Jesus when he came of age, when, you know, at the age of 13. But they didn't. Because they believed that he was the hope of the world. Now, I think that's something very important because throughout Jesus' ministry, we see him using the pain and suffering that he experienced, uh, his family experienced, his siblings experienced, and he uses it to minister to people like you and me who are going through the real trials and sufferings of this life. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees and other religious leaders were constantly questioning Jesus' lineage and his birth. They referred to him as the son of Mary and not the son of Joseph because they knew the scandalous nature in which he was born. Right? Uh, we see the reality that even as hope entered into the world in the form of the child Jesus, that we are still living in a world where we await the ultimate hope of Jesus' return. That during this time, we still encounter struggles and critiques and pains of life living in the fallen world surrounded by fallen people. But the glimpses that we get of the manifestation of hope that we have in Christ throughout his earthly ministry is one example of, of how great this hope is. Right, so throughout Jesus' ministry, he is, he is showing and revealing to the people the hope of life that he, he can offer. So in John chapter 9, there's a story. Uh, I'm sure maybe many of you guys are very familiar with this story. It, it's when Jesus heals a man that is born blind. I'm going to read for us that passage. John chapter 1, uh, John chapter 9, verse 1, it says this, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the, mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said, go wash in the pool of Shalom, which means, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, this is a, a, a video I saw on TikTok, and I was like, wait, this, is, this explanation is amazing. You know, so I read some commentaries, I verified it, and I was like, okay, this is, this is perfect, right? So you can learn even things from TikTok, right? Um, see, in Matthew, we have a story where two blind men come to Jesus, and he merely touches them, and they are healed. And, and these blind men were not blind from birth. Uh, we have another encounter in Mark where Jesus uses spit to heal the blind man, uh, and, and, and his healing happens in two stages. Uh, but the unique thing about the encounter in, in John is twofold. First of all, Jesus uses a mixture of spit and dirt to heal the man. And second, this man is described as someone that is born blind. Uh, and, and, and that's very different from the other men. 
right? And this is something um, I, I think we have to understand kind of Jewish custom and Jewish laws to really understand the, the, uh, the depth of what's going on here, right? In Jewish custom, as I mentioned before, parents were allowed to disinherit children that had disabilities and special needs, right? So if, if, if your child is born with a disfigurement or special needs or, or anything of, of that nature, they're allowed to disinherit them. Right? That's why it's very important that this man was born blind. You can't disinherit someone who becomes blind later in life. But this, this man was born blind. Right? And so a man who was born blind from, uh, uh, you know, would kind of have to deal with the financial burdens, uh, the social burdens right, for parents. Like they have to figure out, well, how am I going to take care of them? And because the idea was that your children at a certain age would be taking care of you. The, the command to honor your father and mother was not that, it was not a command about you obeying your parents when you're kids. The, the, the command to honor your father and mother is talking about how to take care of your parents when they're of you know, an older age, when they can no longer work. A, a disabled child would be a burden in that culture. So the question the disciples had was, as they walked by this man, was, uh, Jesus, uh, you know, who sinned, this man or their parents, that he was born blind? So that, again, tells us that in Jewish culture, they believe that this sort of, uh, of disability or this sort of, uh, you know, event was because it was a punishment from sin. So right away, they didn't ask, you know, like, oh, what can you do to help him? They just asked, hey, who, who's the sinner here, the parents or the, or the son, that he was born blind? So for the Jewish people of that time, at the age of 13, they could disinherit their disabled kids. They no longer had to be responsible for the burden of taking care of them. Uh, they no longer had to be financially uh, tied down for them. And uh, as you know, and we see kind of the, the reality that this man was most likely disinherited by his parents. Because later on, as the Pharisees and religious leaders, they wanted to get to the bottom of this event. They wanted to know, was this man for sure born blind? They go to the parents and ask him, hey, like, is your son, was he born blind? And they're like, hey, you can ask him yourself. He's of age. You know, in that, in that conversation, in that interaction, they're basically saying, you can ask him because we are not responsible for him. And the fact that he was someone who was begging on the streets because of his disability, even though his parents were alive, tells us that they had nothing to do with him. You know, be beggars could, you know, in that time could not beg if they had people that would look after them. They were begging on the streets because they had no one. And for the people of Israel at that time, uh, when they would see someone like him, someone disabled, someone with disabilities, they would believe that it was punishment for their sin or the sin of their parents. And they would see them as despicable and unclean, especially if they were disinherited by their parents. And the custom for the people of Israel at that time, uh, to, as they walked by these beggars or people with disabilities, is that they would walk by and they would spit on the ground next to them. Now, there's a couple things that is very important about this event. Number one, Jesus does this healing on the Sabbath. Now, I don't know if you guys have uh, remembered, the, you know, this, what I've taught before, but um, the Jews were, were very, uh, you know, concerned about what they can and cannot do on the Sabbath. And they would make laws and hedges to make sure that they would never break the Sabbath. And I said, one of the things that you were not allowed to do during the Sabbath is to spit on the ground. Why? Because if you spit on the ground and someone accidentally steps on it, it was considered harvesting. So on the Sabbath day, 
Jesus and the disciples walk by this man. And what does he do? He spits on the ground. Then he turns that saliva and dirt into a mixture of mud. He's harvesting. The Jewish leaders are looking at this, and they're like, what the heck is this guy doing? How dare he break the Sabbath? He creates this mud paste, and then he wipes it upon the eyes of this, of this blind man. Now, why does he go through the situation where we know he could merely touch, he could merely speak to this man and say, Open your eyes, for now you can see. Why does he go through the entire process of spitting on the ground, mixing the dirt, rubbing that paste upon his eyes to make him see? Because it's kind of disgusting, right? If I had an ailment and, like, I was coming to Jesus and I was like, hey, Jesus, can you, like, you know, heal me? And he spits on the ground and makes mud, I'd be like, oh, I'm good. You know, like, you know, wash your hands. You know, that's kind of gross, right? Why would he do that? Number one, he does this because he's showing to the Pharisees and to the people that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that he is God. He is the one that created Sabbath for man. He didn't create man for Sabbath. And number two, he does this because he understands, think about what this man experienced his entire life, sitting and begging on the streets, people spitting right in front of him. He encounters Jesus, a man that might be different in his mind. He's thinking, oh, maybe this is someone who can save me. Maybe this is someone who can heal me. And the first thing that he hears is Jesus spitting on the ground. The triggering of that trauma, the pain and the suffering would just <coughs> volcano erupt in his heart, I'm sure. The disappointment of thinking, oh, this is just another man, another religious leader who looks down upon me, who thinks I am worthless, who does not see the dignity of my humanity, and he is also someone who's spitting on the ground. And then he wipes that mud upon his eyes. And Jesus does this to show him, my hope is not just a conceptual hope. The hope that I bring is not just a hope that will heal your physical ailments. My hope is to show you that all your past traumas, the deepest scars that you have experienced, I have come to heal even those. I'm not here just to give you sight. I'm here to heal the deepest wounds that you have experienced in your life. Now, um, in, my, in my midlife and, and even just throughout the, the struggles of burnout that I've experienced, um, I, I realized something that a lot of times that God has been resurfacing in my life things and issues and pains that I thought I had already taken care of, you know, things that I thought I had already processed, things that I thought I had already dealt with, right, things that I thought, you know what, now I'm older, I can kind of push it aside and like, hey, there he goes, like, I'm good now, you know. But even then, now, like, you see that 
situations arise or people are placed in your lives or God places you in circumstances and situations where these issues or these emotions or these traumas or these triggering things and events are coming back in my life. I'm like, God, why? Can't you just heal my physical ailments? Can't you just make my life good? And he says, no, because as a savior of the world and as a savior of, eat, of your soul, I'm not here to just provide you with a good life. I'm not here to just provide you with physical healing. I'm here because I want to heal the depth of the pain that you've experienced in your soul. And the tangible reality and hope that this blind man, born, you know, blind man experienced was Jesus coming to offer him hope in the deep recesses of the pains of his heart. I think for many of us, oftentimes, we see Jesus as just kind of this uh, out there conceptual savior. Right? Hey, yeah, I know he saved me and I know he gave me eternal life. And, but we don't really realize and we don't really cling to the reality. No, that he's the savior of the very real and tangible pains that we've experienced in life. The way he does things, the way he comes into this world, the way he, 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 he died on the cross and resurrected from the dead, every single thing that he has done has cosmic meaning and purpose. And we get to experience that hope. Perhaps you are experiencing difficulties and trials in your life and you're wondering why are these emotions coming back up? Perhaps you're wondering, you know what, yeah, I know Jesus is good. He gives me eternal life, you know, all that. But, but what does he do for me here in my real life and experience? And Christmas is a time for us to remember and to acknowledge that the reason why that he was born into this world, the reason why he came into the world in such a scandalous and offensive way, and the reason why he did ministry in the way that he did is because he offers a hope that is real, a hope that is tangible, a hope that is relatable to each and every single one of our lives. Let's pray.